Let me invite you to turn to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 2. And we'll read the first 12 verses, and we're going to ask a, a question again that we asked a couple of years ago. We looked at this passage then. Who were these wise men? And as we do that, let me uh, just give you three pegs, if you will, to sort of hang things on. Uh, why do we remember them? Who were they? And especially, what was their response? Uh, why do we remember them? Who were they? And what was their response? Let's read together with those three things in our minds. Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Just parenthetically, something he should have known. They told him, I mean, he's the king of the Jews, they say, right? I mean, you would think that the king of the Jews would have some idea about where this Messiah was going to be born. Tells you something about Herod. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Thanks be to God for his word given to us, his people. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, uh, please, as you have first given us, your word by the work of your spirit, would you now give us again your spirit? Would you, in fact, by your spirit, come and be here and minister to us and speak to us? And, and I pray for myself and for your people that we would be greatly encouraged as we think about your word in your presence. We ask all of this in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Why do we remember these wise men? Well, let me answer that in this way. And in the course of answering it, um, give you a little bit of an insight into 
particularly for those of you who are newer to Christ the King, a little bit of an insight into why we do some of the things we do here. Why do we remember them? Here's the answer. This past Friday was January 6th. Um, Now, January 6th is an important uh, date in my life because January 6th happened to be my mother's 85th birthday. So you understand why it's an important day in my life. You do, right? I mean, if she's not born, I'm not born, okay? I mean, do you ever, just just a little point of of sort of pastoral application here, Um, do you ever marvel at the fact that you are alive at all? I mean, think about all of the things that had to converge in particular ways in order for you just to be here. So, you know, January 6th is a pretty important day for me. But it's an important day in the life of the church in this sense. January 6th is Epiphany. It's the day that brings the Christmas season, which follows the season of Advent, to a close. January 6th is the day when the church for a long time in the West, particularly, the Eastern churches do it differently because they follow a different calendar than we do. Their epiphany is some 13 or 14 days later than ours. But in the West, the Western church has celebrated epiphany on January 6th, and it has celebrated epiphany for this reason. Epiphany comes from a couple of Greek words. Here you go. We're all going to get real smart again. Comes from a couple of Greek words, the second of which means an appearance or a manifestation. And when you add the little preposition to it, epi, E-P-I, when you add the little preposition to it, it's like putting the word manifestation on steroids, It's like a hyper-manifestation. It's like a super-duper manifestation. It's like an over-the-top manifestation. And what is the manifestation? What is the super-duper, over-the-top, on-steroids manifestation? Well, the manifestation or the appearance is the appearance of Jesus. This is how the church has thought about this. The appearance of Jesus, the manifestation of Jesus to the Gentiles. To the Gentiles. The Magi were Gentiles. They were from the east. Probably Persian, maybe from the desert to the east and southeast of Jerusalem. People have different opinions about these things, but the predominant view is that they were from Persia. They were Gentiles. Now, I would guess that most of us in this room are not Jewish. Most of us in this room fall into the category of the Magi. We're Gentiles. And if there is a Day, which means we are from the nations. We are the ethnos, the Gentiles, the nations. We're from all of the people groups other than that specific and particular people group 
the Jews. And if there's a day on the church calendar when it seems to me we would want to stand up and shout and celebrate, it would be Epiphany. Because Epiphany is the day when the church every year gives thanks for, celebrates the fact that this Savior whose birth was announced, whose birth then came to pass, this Savior is a Savior not for a particular people, not for a particular ethnicity, not for a particular socioeconomic class, not for a particular race. This is a Savior for the nations. And you come from the nations. And so if there's a day in the year when we ought to celebrate, it's Epiphany. Now here's the little bit of insight into why we do some of what we do here at Christ the King. People are commemorators. Okay? People are commemorators. People commemorate stuff. I mean, if you don't have a birthday party for your kids, they revolt. We commemorate things. The Israelites were commemorators. Jess Crawl, who sits up here in the front every Sunday morning, asked me a couple of weeks ago, where did the rocks go? And I said, well, you know, Jess, we've tried to approach church discipline from a different angle. We're not going to use stones anymore. No, 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 no. We've taken the stones out of the room, and if you've noticed, there's a pad of cement that's been poured out there, and we're going to build a little pedestal on that pad of cement, and we're going to put all those stones on that pedestal, and that is going to be for us an Ebenezer. An Ebenezer is a stone of remembrance, and Israel would build piles of rocks to commemorate God's faithfulness and God's Mighty acts of redemption. And we're going to put those stones that so worried Jess for so long, we're going to put them outside so that everybody inside knows that we're safe. And those stones will be for us a rock of remembrance. You'll pass by them. You'll look at them. And you'll say, God has been faithful to this congregation. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I'm come, and I hope, not, not with an uncertain hope, but with a biblical and sure and certain hope, here I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. You sang that this morning. You sang Ebenezer, and there will be an Ebenezer out there. Why? Because Israelites were commemorators. And taking our cue from them, we are commemorating God's faithfulness with a pile of rocks. Israel didn't just commemorate things by putting up piles of rocks. God gave Israel a means by which to commemorate his mighty redemptive acts in addition to piles of rocks. He gave them a series of feasts. The Feast of Passover and the Feast of Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles. You've got to do a little study of this stuff. It's remarkable. And why did God do that? What was, 
What was the first of the feasts? The feast of Passover. It celebrated. Got to say this again. When you think Israel, think me. When you think Israel's story, think my story. Because Israel's story is your story. Why did they every year celebrate the Passover? Because the Passover was an annual celebration of their deliverance from bondage and the beginning of their exodus in the direction through the wilderness in the direction of the promised land. That's your story, folks. You, by the work of Christ, who is our Passover, Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 11, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. By his death and resurrection, he has set us on exodus, having freed us from bondage, not to a political power, not to an earthly potentate, but he has set us free from bondage in sin and death. And he set us on exodus in the direction of a greater promised land. And when they got to the land, they celebrated Pentecost, which is the feast of first fruits. The feast of first fruits. That's what Pentecost is. And if you're a Christian this morning, you have tasted of the glories to come. You've been given a deposit, a down payment of what awaits you in fullness at final harvest. Pentecost is first fruits. And tabernacles is final harvest. It was a week-long celebration of God's providential care and faithfulness in the promised land. A series of feasts and festivals that celebrated, that commemorated in Israel every single year God's power and redemption and blessing upon his people. So what do we do here at Christ the King? We build piles of rocks taking our cue from the Old Testament and we observe the church year. We don't do it in a slavish way. We don't do it in an over-the-top way. We're not imprisoned by it. But every Sunday in the bulletin, you'll see a reference to it. You'll see it this morning. The first Sunday after Epiphany. That's what today is. And why do we do that? Here's why, folks. Again, we're not slavish in our observance of these things. We're not imprisoned by it. But here's the reason we do it. Just as through those feasts and festivals in the Old Testament, God was reminding his people that history is about him and his redemption. So on this side of the cross, understanding that Christ is our Passover, that Christ is our Pentecost, that Christ is our final harvest, every single year we recycle through the great redemptive events that God has accomplished in and through Jesus Christ. Advent, the promise of a coming Savior. Christmas, the season of Christmas. Did you notice that we kept singing Christmas carols after Christmas Day? Christmas, the season, the 12 days in which we celebrate the gift of this Savior child. And then Epiphany, remembering the Magi and remembering that the Magi, Gentiles, they are us. 
Let's not forget them. Let's not pass over them. Let's celebrate what they represent. They represent the fact that Christ is presented to the world as a savior of the nations. And the Magi embody that truth, that reality. And following this season of epiphany is a long stretch of what is called ordinary time. And we look forward then to the season of Lent. Look, I I might want to in some of my weirder moments, I might want to put little ashen crosses on your heads so that you can go out into the world and be identified as those who are identified with Jesus Christ. We have bodies. I mean, come, don't get, don't worry here, please. Don't be concerned, okay? Don't worry. But Lent is a period of time in the history of the church where the church looks forward to what? The passion of Christ. It's a time of repentance, not that silliness that goes on when people celebrate the way they do in New Orleans and commit all their sins, one last grand sinful indulgence before the period of Lent starts. Not that. Not that. But a season, a period in which we can look forward to the passion of Christ. We can look forward to his betrayal. We can look forward to his cross. We can look forward to his resurrection. And then following that, his ascension. And following that, Pentecost. The outpouring of the Spirit. The first fruits that directs our attention to the final consummation. The ultimate feast of tabernacles in the promised land where we know the full harvest and all of the blessedness of that kingdom. I want to be reminded of these things. I need to be reminded of these things. And in the midst of it, what I need to be reminded of is that history belongs to God. History is about God. It's not about the BCS championship game. I know you smile and you laugh. There are people who will be crushed tomorrow night. History is not about that kind of silliness. History is about God and what God does. And what God has done is given the Savior to the world. Not just a particular nation, but the nation's. And I want to remember that year by year by year. So you won't ever see us over the top in a sort of a slavish devotion to this church year thing. But you will see periodic reminders, which I trust will be an encouragement to you to remember that history is about God and what God does. And all we're doing is taking our cue from the Old Testament. Right? All scripture is inspired by God. And when Paul wrote that, he was writing about the Old Testament. And so we're taking our cue from what God did with his people across the Old Testament, learning from them, seeking to acquire wisdom from them. That's why we build piles of rocks. That's why I like the idea of celebrating the church year. So that's why we remember the Magi. Who were they? Well, here's who they were, probably. 
They were probably Persian. We don't know this for sure, but a whole lot of circumstantial and surrounding evidence suggests that they were Persian. They were from the east. They may even have come from the region of Babylon. Now, magi is a word that gives us our word magician. It's used of a couple of other people in the scriptures. It's used of Simon Magus in Acts chapter 8. But to reduce who these men were to magicians, people who were familiar with magic and incantations, is seriously to reduce who and what they were. They were learned. They represented a class of people who were wisdom seekers. That's why they're referred into in the text as being wise men. They were wisdom seekers. Have you seen the bumper stickers? You see them sometimes. Wise men still seek him. They, they were seekers. They were seekers after wisdom. They were seekers after understanding and knowledge. They became advisors in courts. If you want an example of a wise man, look at Daniel. Think Daniel. Daniel was educated. He certainly was educated in his own culture, but he was educated in the Chaldean culture. And when the king had a question about a dream that he had had, who did he summon? Whom did he bring in? He brought in wise men, Daniel, people who had knowledge and understanding. And these wise men were from that sort of caste. They had studied religion. They had studied philosophy. They were familiar even as naturalists with the movement of stars and constellations and the intersection of stars and planets and constellations. They made these things their study. And there's a lot more that we could say about them. But the thing that is so interesting about the wise men is that something provoked them. Something provoked them to make this trek from where they were in Persia across the Fertile Crescent through what is now Syria and from Syria down long trade routes down through Syria and into the Holy Land in order to come specifically to Jerusalem in order to ask the specific question, Where is this king of the Jews whose birth is promised? We've seen his star. Now, it'll take another sermon to deal with the star. And if you read the commentators, there's a divergence of opinion about what the star was. In every case, the good commentators acknowledge that there is a supernatural dimension to this disclosure. A supernatural dimension to this disclosure. But they had seen the star from where they were, and the star, which may have been a convergence of stars and and planets and constellations, it, it may have been a supernova. Some of the scholars actually think, based upon the way language is used in the scriptures, that it may have been a special angel. Angels figure prominently in Matthew 1 giving warnings, issuing commands, could actually have been a specially appointed angel or some combination of these things. The point is, 
that these wise men saw this star, and seeing this star, they were provoked to come specifically to Jerusalem. And the question becomes, how did they know to go to Jerusalem? And again, if you look at the commentators, many of them will acknowledge this point. Very wonderfully significant point. They set, many of the commentators, and it's persuasive and compelling to me, set the visit of the Magi in the context of the whole of redemptive history. This is not a fluke thing here. This is not some bizarre one-off kind of thing. But they set this visit of the Magi in the context of the whole of redemptive history and more specifically in the context of Israel's exile from the promised land to Babylon, that is to Persia, where they lived for 70 years before the return at the command and by the provision of God. But when they returned, they didn't all return. Many, many, many stayed. And when they stayed where they were, synagogues would spring up, whether in Babylon or the surrounding towns and villages, because there were Jews in those places. And they retained their form of worship. And what was at the center of their form of worship, because they were removed from the temple, what was at the center of their form of worship is the very same thing that is at the center of our worship, the word and promises of God. And it was in the synagogue that the word of God was read and was explained. It was in the synagogues that the rabbis would unfold and unpack the rich promises of the kingdom of God and the promise of a king. Now look, what happens today happened then. Gentiles would find their ways to these synagogues. That's what Paul encountered when he began to preach the gospel, when he went into Asia Minor and then into Greece and beyond that into Rome. Where would he go? He'd go to synagogues. What would he find in synagogues? He would find Jews and he would find Gentile proselytes. It had been happening for centuries. And so through the synagogues, quite probably the Magi, became aware of the promise and the promises of a coming king who was associated with a star. Numbers chapter 24 will tell you that there is a star which will arise out of Judah. Just one of many promises. And they would have become familiar with these promises. And then there are passages like Isaiah 9, these Passages that we read during the season of Advent. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of His government and of peace, 
There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And there's Isaiah chapter 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days. By the way, come tonight to learn about the latter days. (laughs) This is the church of Jesus Christ filled with latter day saints. And we are not Mormons. Come tonight and we'll unpack that for you. Tantalizing, isn't it? It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And then this, all the nations shall flow to it. The nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and shall say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now listen, if you live in Persia, do you know what your legacy is? Do you know what you have inherited? You have inherited, your legacy is violence and destruction and conflict and cruelty. You're the descendant of Assyrians, culturally. You're the descendant of Babylonians, culturally. The two most vicious and warlike nations the world arguably has ever seen. And in your most recent memory is Alexander the Great, who marched with his armies across this whole region and subdued it, subjugated it, fought wars and battles to conquer it. Your world is a world of strife and conflict. And if you are a wisdom seeker, familiar with promises, familiar with the Word of God, somehow having gained access to it, this is not a weird supernatural experience in that sense that these magi have experienced. They have heard the promises of a better king and a better kingdom. They're tired of the kingdoms of this world. And to put words in their mouths, if I could, they are looking for the day when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Who are the Magi? Seekers by the grace of God. Those who having been exposed to the word of God, the promises of God, seek this king. And what was their response? 
Much, much different from the response of Herod. Much, much different from the response of Herod. What you have in Matthew chapter 2 is actually a fulfillment of Simeon's prophecy concerning Jesus when he was presented in the temple. You remember Simeon? The old man, maybe old man, maybe not so old, looking for the consolation of Israel, who said to Mary, this child is appointed for the falling and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is to be opposed, so that thoughts from the hearts of many may be revealed. Here he is, Jesus, less than two years old, an infant, barely more than a baby, and the announcement of his presence causes division. Herod who wants to kill him, the wise men who want to worship him. And the response of the wise men is to come with rejoicing to worship this newborn king. And that's the ultimate issue, isn't it? With respect to Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Christ exposes, reveals what is in our hearts. And let me just suggest this to you. Always and only there are two responses. Love, rejoicing, and worship. Or hate and anger and an attempt to destroy. Who are these wise men? Wise men. Wise men. Who sought this child because of everything that he represented. A different kind of king. A different kind of kingdom. Let me put this to you. Be sure. Before we come to this table, be sure what you think about Jesus Christ. He is the watershed person in all of human history. To know him, to receive him, is to know the blessedness of his Father. To reject him is to know the curse of his Father. Jesus Christ is the watershed issue. Herod and the wise men are a representation of that. Before we come to this Lord's table, let's take just a moment. Let's quiet our hearts and let's look into our hearts. And again, let me put this to you. Be certain. Be certain of your response to Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for coming into this world, for being a king who brings a different kind of kingdom. And now, Lord Jesus, as you are in our midst, would you wrestle with us? By your grace, would you give us courage 
to see and to know what is in our hearts. And Lord Jesus, if there are any in this room who have not yet done what the wise men did, bow the knee before you, would you in relentless grace and mercy wrestle them to the ground and change their hearts and give them grace to embrace you. And as we come to this table, Lord Jesus Christ, as you have been with us, we trust in the ministry of your word. Would you now be with us as we come to this table by your spirit? Hear these prayers. We ask in your name. Amen. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table, let's stand and sing this great hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us.